Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at several verses in that chapter, so we want everybody to have a Bible. These guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back if you need one and get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. And it's marked for you at James 1, so you don't have to fumble around. And you can keep that Bible as well. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. James 1. Some of you may remember Stephen Covey's best-selling how-to book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in it, Covey explains seven habits that are guaranteed to make you effective in life. That book became quite a phenomenon, launching seminars and whole corporations, purchased not only the book but the tools that go with it and taught it to their employees. And in the wake of that seven habits phenomenon, a Christian author published a somewhat humorous but at the same time biting book called The 77 Habits of Highly Ineffective Christians. It lists the habits that you need to engage in if you want to be a truly ineffective Christian. Habit number 10 you need to cultivate for ineffectiveness is called be a hearer only. And it says this, It may surprise you that some of the most ineffective Christians today learn more about the Bible than anyone else. Let me explain. Those who constantly sit under the teaching of the Word have a wonderful opportunity for mediocrity. These are people who most likely have four or more Bibles, as well as a shelf of Christian books and commentaries. And they say amen while listening to their Christian radio station, with all car windows down, volume up. These people teach classes, answer questions correctly, and pray an inordinately long time during church prayer time. But the pivotal word for them is the word hear. For they only listen to the word and they don't do it in their lives. Follow their example. Become filled with the desire to hear facts and view charts and maps about the Bible so you can tell others all the neat information you've gleaned. But do not do the word. Go away from each conference or seminar feeling very good about transcribing the entire outline and all the scriptural references, but don't do a thing about changing your own life. If you encounter an admonition against a particular sin, simply look past the passage until you come to something you're already doing right. This, of course, is like a man who looks in the mirror at a restaurant and fails to remove the broccoli lodged between his teeth, but is quick to point out the cream corn on his neighbor's lapel. Hear as much about Christianity as you can, but do as little as possible so it will have the least effect in your life. And then it says the main scripture to avoid is James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Now, that's the passage we're going to consider this morning. Verse 22 says this. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, today we begin a three-week mini-series called The Transformation of the Gospel. Last week, we completed a six-week series called The Treasure of the Gospel, And I wanted to follow up in the weeks before Christmas with three messages about how the gospel changes us in the here and now. Now, for those who are wondering about our sermon schedule, today and the next two Sundays, we'll deal with this topic of the transformation of the gospel. 
And then on the 27th, we'll have a Christmas message, as you saw in the program. We have only one service, our worship service that day. Then on January 3rd, we'll have a message to prepare our church for the new year. And then on January 10th, we will finally get back to our series in the book of Genesis and pick up where we left off at chapter 6 and verse 9. An ineffective Christian is one who's a hearer only. Now, of course, it's not that hearing the word is bad. It's that only hearing the word is bad. In fact, verses 18 and 19 tell us that we should be, in fact, very eager to listen, to hear. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And when it says quick to listen, it means eager. Now, why should we be eager to hear the word? Well, just follow with me as I briefly lay out the context of the verses that precede our passage that starts in verse 22. The very beginning in verse 2, James says that we should consider it all joy when, not if, God allows trials to come into our lives. Although those trials are for our good, it is very easy for us to sin in the midst of those difficult circumstances. And that's why when you come down to verse 13, we're told when one is tempted, he should not say that God is tempting me. And then James goes on to explain that that's impossible for God. So it's easy for us to sin in the midst of those difficult circumstances that are those trials, to blame God for our sin and to become angry at God and others. And so verses 19 and 20 warn about the fact that man's anger, man's wrath does not develop, does not create the righteous life that God desires. But instead of that, the proper course is to remember that God intends these trials only for good. In fact, maturity is the end of God's design for those circumstances in our lives, according to verse 4. And we're to remember as well that the character of this God who allows these trials in our lives is only capable of good. That's why verse 17 says every good and perfect gift comes from God. Sin conceives death, according to verse 15. But God has given us a conception of birth, according to verse 18, that leads to new living. And that new life, according to verse 18, came through the word of truth. And that's why verse 19 says we should be eager to hear the word, the very word that gave us life from the God who gives this life. But it is, friends, very possible to hear with our ears and not put into practice what we hear in our lives. In fact, it's so possible that James warns against it. Verse 22, do not merely listen. It is probable that many in our churches, and our church included, take for granted the hearing of God's word. And therefore, we do this very thing. We hear week after week, but hear only. And so we need God's help. We need God's help to arrest our attention, to remind us anew of the preciousness of his word and the requirement that we have, if we are going to grow in Christ's likeness and be transformed by the gospel, that we be indeed not only hearers, 
but doers of the word. Let's ask God to help us then. Father, we come before you on another Lord's Day with the great privilege, the marvelous privilege of opening your word. Lord, we're thankful that we have your word. We have it in our hands. There, there are your people in other parts of your world who do not have that privilege and who cannot gather in safety and comfort. And we have all of these privileges. And yet, Lord, it is so easy for us to go through the motions, to take that for granted. And so, Lord, help us to be eager listeners, not only today, but each time we open God's word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, my intention in this message is to first explain uh, verses 22 through 25 primarily. And then I want to give some application as to the a root cause of what uh, results in our lack of putting into practice what we hear so often. We're going to spend nearly all our time on the first major point that's on the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take a look. We learn first from this passage that we should desire change from God's word. We should desire change from God's word. Again, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, it says, do not merely listen. That is, listening is, of course, necessary. You can't benefit from God's word unless you hear it or read it. And hearing in the New Testament is stressed because the people to whom the New Testament was first written did not have their own copies of God's word. So when they gathered together, they were hearing it from someone else. They were hearing someone else read it. They didn't have their own copies of God's word. The Bible as I say, was not completed. So the letter was written and circulated and it was read in the assembly of God's people. And so for them, as you might imagine, it was quite a special occasion. But when gathering for the word ceases to be a special occasion, then we'll take it for granted. And we'll take for granted all that takes place when we come together as God's people. Now, just pause for a moment and think about that in your own life. We do the same order of service pretty much every week. And we preach the message and many of the concepts many of you have heard over a period of time. And so it's very easy for us to become dull in our hearing and certainly dull in our doing. And so this is warning us about that kind of complacency. It was a kind of complacency that they obviously could have. That's why this warning was issued to them. But for them, it was often a special occasion to hear. And for us, it can be something we simply go through the motions doing. Hearing is necessary, verse 22 is telling us, but it's not sufficient in order to achieve God's purposes. The word for listen in verse 22 was used in New Testament times of those who attended a lecture, but they were not followers of the lecturer. It's possible to hear Christ's word, but not be a follower of Christ. You can attend a speech by someone with whom you disagree, can't you? You can hear what they have to say, but not act upon it. But presumably, those who claim to follow Christ will obey what they hear from him. But we've adopted an approach in evangelical churches that says, I can be a sort of auditor of God's word 
and feel no obligation to change each Sunday. Really, friends, we ought to, each of us, come away every week with something about ourselves that God has shown us in his word that we need to change. And this eagerness to hear is not to just be on Sunday, but each time we open God's word, whether it's at home, doing our own study, whenever it is. The middle of verse 22 says, if you take this hearing only approach, you deceive yourselves. D. Edmund Hebert wrote in his commentary on the book of James, many determine their godliness by the quality of hearing or reading instead of action and and, and obedience. And as a result, they deceive themselves as if that is somehow enough or that somehow achieves God's purpose. People who take copious notes so that they can use them on other people are examples of this. People who have a strict devotional or Bible reading program, but little or no change in their own lives are examples of this. I ask you, friends, how long have you had the same internal struggles, failing to apply what you've heard from God's word? If we're going to be doers and not merely hearers, we need to understand a couple of things about this change that we're to desire from God's word. We have them in your outline. The first is this. The Bible is intended for change. So we should desire change from God's word. And we need to understand that the Bible is intended for that very kind of change. Verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, we see that this is God's intention because of what is said about failure to change. Failure to change, as presented in verses 23 and 24, is presented as something foolish. Now, you may remember that wisdom is the application of what we know. It's the application of truth as that truth is intended to be used. Foolishness is failure to use what God has given for God's intended purpose. And it's so obviously foolish for someone to come to the word and then walk away unchanged. It's like a man who looks in a mirror, sees change that is needed to his face, but he walks away and his appearance remains unchanged. Now, the word looking in verse 24 is a different word than if you look in verse 25 where it says, looks intently at the perfect law of liberty. There's looking in verse 24, and then there's looks intently in verse 25. And these are two different words. In verse 24, it's a a more casual glance. The word in verse 25 is a word for a studied gaze, a focused gaze. And that's why the NIV translators have translated it looks, not just looks, but looks intently. And so the person in verse 24 is somebody who takes a glance. And they're taking a glance in mirrors that in those days were placed on tables horizontally. So the person had to look down in order to see themselves. They had to bend down. They they could bend down long enough to see that something is out of place, but they had no desire to linger and then to take care and to correct what is out of place. The Bible is intended for us to look into it and to be changed by it. 
Not only is the Bible intended for changing us, secondly, we say in your outline, we should be intentional about change. The Bible's intended for the purpose of change, and we then should be intentional about seeking that change. Verse 25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. It says looks intently. As I say, it's a different word than in verse 24. That is this casual glance. And not only that, but it's written in a way that this is a person who continues to do so. That here's a person who looks, but not only looks once and makes some changes, this is a person who looks intently and continues to look intently. These mirrors that they used in New Testament times were not made of glass. The mirrors we're used to did not come in until uh, use until about a thousand years, at least a thousand years after this was written. These mirrors in New Testament times were polished bronze, sometimes silver, sometimes even gold. So if you really wanted to see yourself, you not only had to bend over, but you had to look intently. And what is it we're looking intently into? Verse 25, the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, it's called law, the Bible. And many of you know that as we've come to the New Testament, we are no longer under the law of Moses, the law in the first part of your Bible. But it's not to say we are not under law at all. We are not under the law of Moses, but the Bible speaks of the law of Christ. And this is indeed a law in the sense that it's not optional. What you look at and what Jesus says and what Jesus' first followers wrote for us, the apostles, none of that is optional for us. For us, it is God's word, it is authoritatively binding, and it is to be carried out. So it's called law because it is mandatory, it's not optional. But as we'll see, it's a law not of bondage, but one that gives freedom. So if the Bible is given for the purpose of change... Why don't we look to the Bible for that? Why do we all too seldom look to the Bible to change us? Why is it all too infrequent that we are actually changed? Why is it all so customary that Christians can have been saved for decades, decades, and there be very little change in their lives? Why do so many of us fail to use the Bible wisely for its intended purpose? Well, it may be because there is no spiritual life that comes from the word of truth, according to verse 18. And that, in turn, according to verse 21, has been planted in us, and so the Bible does not resonate with us. That may be it. We're not saved. But it's possible that we are born again but have not appropriated the implications of the gospel. The reason we fail to gladly look into the Bible is because we know it will show us ugly things about ourselves, and our pride is too delicate to be harmed in that way. We want to be told, don't we, friends, how good we are? And we know we're not going to find that in the Bible. 
We want to be affirmed in our high view of ourselves. And we know we won't find that in the Bible. We want people around us who agree that we're right. And it's my husband who's the problem. And when I find people who are willing to tell me not what I want to hear, but what I need to hear, I don't want to be around those kind of people anymore. In other words, the reason I don't look to the Bible for answers about me is I have a high view of me and the Bible doesn't. Therefore, that's a mirror I avoid. I'll take a casual glance, but not a focused glance for the purpose of changing what needs to be changed. I hear, but I don't do. Because what I read in there paints an ugly self-portrait that I can't bear to look at. You understand, do you not, that change requires discomfort. Change for the better requires discomfort. There has to be that time where I look at it and I say, it's wrong. And that's me there. And that's wrong about me. And yes, that causes pain. But God's intention is that it be temporary until it is corrected. Change requires the discomfort of seeing ourselves as we truly are. In the most famous verse in the Bible about the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says rebuke follows the teaching of God's word. Let me remind you of what that passage says. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, there's a, a logical order to the four things that that verse says the Bible is useful for. If you reverse any of them, then it doesn't make any sense. But they go precisely in this order. That when we open the Bible and we read it or it's presented to us, then we are, then we are taught. We are taught what the Bible says. But then having been taught what the Bible says, there's always going to be a gap somewhere between what the Bible says about me and where I actually am. And that gap then results in the second of those things, rebuking. Now, the word that's translated rebuking there is a word that's translated elsewhere as convicting. So you could read that as the Bible is useful for teaching and convicting. As the Bible teaches me, I in turn am convicted. As one who doesn't measure up to the standard that God has laid out in his word. Now, if God put a period there, we would be in deep trouble. So the Bible is useful for teaching and rebuking, period, and you're left in your misery. But, of course, the Bible is useful for two other things, for correcting, correcting. And so that is a word that means to cause to stand something that has previously fallen, to correct And so the Bible gives the instructions for what needs to be done to correct what we were convicted or rebuked about. And God doesn't want that correction to be a one-time thing, but an ongoing way of life. And that's what the training in righteousness is about. Habits, disciplines of life. And notice, friends, all of this comes from God's Word. God's Word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And yet, we avoid it, and we avoid looking intently because we don't want the pain that goes with that change. 
Some of us, I'm afraid many of us, can't handle the truth about ourselves because our pride will not allow it. Think about the last time that you repented of something specific. And you repented of something specific that involved someone else. That you had to go and say, I have learned this about me. And I'm confessing that to you and I'm asking you to forgive me. Now recall that verse 21 instructs us to humbly accept the word that's planted in you. Humbly accept the word that's planted in you. And then verse 22 then goes on to say, do not merely listen, but do what the word says. So the verse just preceding that, verse 21, says, in order for this to happen, the word that gave us new birth must be humbly accepted. Now I'd like to talk about then how the opposite of that humility that verse 21 says is necessary if we're going to change. What's the opposite of that humility? It's pride. And I'd like to talk about how our pride operates and how that pride can keep us from applying the truth of the Bible. I recently read a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which I found very helpful in this regard. And in it, the author deals with a passage that we're going to put on the screen in a moment from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But the context of 1 Corinthians 4 is that Paul, who wrote it, is correcting the approach that the Christians at the church in Corinth were taking toward their leaders, including Paul. Many of you know that you'll read there that he says, some of you say, I'm of Paul. Some of you say, I'm of Peter. Some of you say, I'm of Christ. Everybody's kind of chosen their favorite guy. And in chapter 4 and verse 6, he says this, you should not be puffed up. You should not be puffed up. And then he goes on to say in that verse, and then you will no longer compare us one to one to another. Now, that word that's translated puffed up is an unusual word. It's used six times in 1 Corinthians and one other time in the New Testament in Colossians 2, also written by Paul. And the word used in this passage, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, for, for being puffed up literally means to be overinflated, swollen, distended beyond proper size. It's related to the word for a bellows. It's very evocative. It brings to mind a rather painful image of an organ in the human body. An organ that's distended because so much air has been pumped into it. So much air that it's overinflated and ready to burst. It's swollen, inflamed, extended past its proper size. We sometimes say someone who's prideful has a big, a big head, right? Now this is an image that communicates a number of things about the human ego, says this author of the book. The first is this, the human ego is empty, is empty. There's emptiness at the center of human pride. The ego that's puffed up and overinflated has nothing at its center, it's empty. The normal human ego is built on something besides God. And it searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, a sense of purpose, and it builds itself on that. And, of course, as we're often reminded, if you try to put anything in the middle 
of the place that was originally made for God, it's going to be too small. It's going to rattle around in there. So the first thing about the human ego is that it's, it's empty. Here's the second thing. It's also painful. Have you ever thought about the fact that you don't notice your body until there's something wrong with it? When we're walking around, we're not usually thinking about how fantastic our toes are feeling. Or how brilliantly our elbows are working today. We'd only think like that if there had previously been something wrong with our toes or our elbows. And that's because the parts of the body only draw attention to themselves if there's something wrong with them. But consider this, the ego often hurts. And that's because there's something incredibly wrong with it. Something unbelievably wrong with it. It's always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It's always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. People sometimes say their feelings are hurt. But really our feelings can't be hurt. It's the ego that hurts. It's my sense of self, my identity. Our feelings are fine. It's my ego that hurts. Walking around doesn't hurt my toes unless there's something wrong with my toes. My ego ego would not hurt unless there was something terribly wrong with it. It's very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves. And that's because there's something wrong with my ego. There's something wrong with my identity. There's something wrong with my sense of who I am. It's never happy. It's always drawing attention to itself. So the human ego is empty. And secondly, it's like a bloated stomach that's distended. It's painful. And thirdly, the ego is incredibly busy. Incredibly busy. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, You should not be puffed up. And when you are no longer puffed up, you will not no longer compare us one to another. You should not be puffed up, and then you won't do that. And this is the very essence of what it means to have a normal human ego, a sinful, normal, natural human ego. The way of the normal human ego tries to fill its emptiness and deal with its discomfort by comparing itself to other people all the time. In his famous chapter on pride in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis points out that pride is by nature competitive. It is competitiveness that's at the very heart of pride. Lewis says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're actually proud of being richer, cleverer, and better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. In other words, we're only proud of being more successful or more intelligent, more good-looking than the next person. And when we're in the presence of someone who's more successful, intelligent, good-looking than we are, we lose all pleasure in what we had. And that's because we really had no pleasure in it in the first place. We were proud of it. As Lewis says, pride is the pleasure of having more than the next person. Pride is the pleasure of being more than the next person. And all the time, our egos have us doing all kinds of things 
not for the pleasure of doing them, but because we're trying to put together an impressive resume compared to others. By comparing ourselves to other people and trying to make ourselves look better than others, we're boasting. Trying to recommend ourselves, trying to create a self-esteem resume because we're desperate to fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. The ego just keeps us busy all the time. So the ego is empty and it's painful. Very busy, very active. And lastly, it's fragile. It's fragile. And this is because anything that's overinflated is in imminent danger of being deflated. Like an overinflated balloon. And if we're puffed up by air and not filled with something solid, then to be overinflated or deflated comes down to the same thing. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex are basically the same. They're both results of being overinflated. The person with a superiority complex is overinflated and in danger of being deflated. The person with an inferiority complex is deflated already. Someone with an inferiority complex will tell you they hate themselves. And they'll tell themselves that they hate themselves. They're deflated. But to be deflated means you were previously inflated. Deflated or in imminent danger of being deflated, the same thing. And it makes the ego very fragile. Wouldn't you like to be able to go by a mirror and look and be able to say, it's okay and yet not admire? Just see yourself accurately as you are. And yet in the words of that great theologian, Carly Simon, You're so vain. You probably think this sermon is about you. (laughs) Because you walked into a party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. Your scarf, it was apricot. You had one eye in the mirror as you watched yourself gavotte. You see, friends, we've been crying, look at me, our whole lives. And the Bible shows you to you. But you don't like what you see. You want to be seen, but you don't want to look at what you are. How great would it be to be able to be free from ego and what other people think about me or even what I think about me? Is that possible? And the answer is, yes, it's absolutely possible. But it's only possible in the gospel. It is only in appropriating the truth of the gospel that I am free to be who I really am. And I'm free to see myself as I really am. Now, how does that, how does that work? I had on the screen for you earlier, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. And I said that the context of that was Paul who wrote it, instructing the Corinthians to cease comparing one teacher to another. And in that very same chapter, just a few verses prior to the verse that says you should not be puffed up. And when you are no longer puffed up, you will stop comparing us one to another. Just a few verses before that, 
He says this. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, friends, if you and I could adopt that kind of perspective on ourselves, all the junk that the ego does with us would be gone. Paul was as close to an egoless sinner as you could find. And why is that? It's because he was not following the advice that we would give. You know, if you're talking to a friend and, and you say, you know, these people think I'm this or these people think I'm that, and they don't really know me, your friend is going to say, hey, who cares what they think? What really matters is what you think. What do you think about yourself? But notice in this passage, Paul doesn't say that. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. But then he says, I don't care what other people think. And I don't even care what I think about myself. That's what's not, not what's most important. The thing I care about most is what the Lord thinks about me. And the thing I need most is what the Lord thinks about me. He says... My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. And the word that's translated innocent is the same word that the same apostle has used in his letters to Romans and Galatians for justified. The declaration by God that I am righteous in Christ, even though I still sin. That does not make me justified. It's the Lord who judges me. Paul was absolutely secure in who he was because he understood the implications of the gospel. I remember years ago, I was at a church in Dallas, large church. In fact, I'll tell you the church. It was the church started by Gene Getz. Some of you know that name because he's authored a number of books. And I was speaking with one of the elders at that church who had been with Gene Getz for decades. And he made the statement that stuck with me about Gene. He said he's the most secure man I've ever met. And what he meant by that is he's not somebody who feels like he has to prove himself. He's secure in who he is in Christ. He's able to be confronted He has the humility to be confronted because he's secure in Christ. His justification doesn't come from his performance. It doesn't come from what everybody thinks. It comes from from God. And God's verdict has been given. And then God's verdict will be given in the future. And he's completely secure and comfortable in that. He understands what he wrote in Romans chapter 8. There is now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are someone who cannot accept criticism. You are someone who is not secure in your position in Christ. So Paul can now see himself accurately as he is. And what he needs to change because his ego is not captive. And in verse 25 of James chapter 1. We're told that we should look intently into the law that gives freedom. 
It's a law that finds us out and indeed convicts us, but then sets us free rather than condemning us. It sets us free to see who we really are and what our problems really are. It sets us free from the opinions of others. It sets us free from our own opinion. And so, friends, if we're going to be doers of the word and look intently, we have to be willing to look intently and say, that's me, I do that. And God says we need to change it. But we'll only do that if we have the security in Christ to see ourselves as we are and be able to take appropriate action, whether confessing, repenting, seeking forgiveness. So we should desire change from God's word. God's word's intended for that. We should be intentional about it. We should welcome it when we're shown things about ourselves. We should desire change from God's word, but secondly, in your outline, we should desire radical change from God's word. Radical change. Verses 26 and 27. Verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Those two verses give us two kinds of change that we should desire. We should desire inward change, inward change. Verse 26 says, one who does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, his religion is worthless. Hey, how are you doing with the tongue? And that's an inward change that then comes outward in the way we speak. And we know this from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The tongue is the small rudder to the ship, but it controls everything. A small spark that can set a whole forest on fire. We should desire inward change and we should demonstrate outward change. Verse 27 says in things like compassion toward others rather than comparing ourselves to others. So what's our take-home truth? God has given us his word for the purpose of changing us. He's given us his word for the purpose of changing us. But you will only avail yourself of that change that God's word is intended to give if you appropriate the implications of the gospel, that I am a child, son, daughter of God, that I have been declared righteous before him, and now I desire to please him with my life. And so, Lord, I ask you to show me things about me. I ask you to bring people into my life who can sharpen me and show me things about myself. And rather than rebuffing those people, and rather than recoiling when I'm criticized, we welcome those wounds of a friend so that we can be better conformed to the image of Christ. Wouldn't you love to be able to live that way? How much better off would you be? How much better off would our churches be if we had people who came at it from that kind of perspective? Helping one another to become more like Jesus. We're going to pray in just a moment. And this is a message that I believe virtually every person here, if not every person here, can find his or herself saying, Oh me, 
Oh, Lord, I am so focused on me. And I don't like it when I see things or hear things and told things about myself that are not pleasant. But you intend these things for my good. And I've been reminded that I need them. Friends, let's confess. Let's repent. And if you don't know Christ, if you've never come to Christ, you will not be able to do this. Your natural default position for your ego is to compare yourself to other people. You are all of those four things we talked about. Your ego is empty. It's painful, it's busy, and it's fragile. But if you come to Christ, you can have that security in Him so that you have the freedom to live as you were intended and as who you truly are. Now, how do you come to Christ? You realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ died for your sin. Repent, that is, Lord, I give you my life. I'm going to go your way and not my way. And then when we pray here, you say that to him from your heart to God. No magic formula. You say to God, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. And Lord, I give my life to you. I'm going to follow you with my life. Let's bow together, friends. Well, Father, we thank you again for this great privilege of being able to open your word. And Lord, today is not like every Lord's Day because we were intentionally and consciously reminded that we need to be eager hearers and ready to be changed. Lord, help us not to forget that. Lord, I can forget that tomorrow. I can forget that next week. We ask for your aid so that this is something that we not only do in this sacred moment, But that is our regular habit when we open your word. Lord, show me as I truly am. I invite you to do this because I know you do it for my good. And I want to be like Jesus and I want to please you with my life. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to move upon the hearts of some in this room who came here without a relationship with you. They know nothing of the security this confidence that we can have in Christ so that we don't have to compare ourselves to others. We don't have to constantly be trying to better ourselves. Constantly deflated because we were first inflated. I ask you to draw them to yourself so that they can join us in becoming like Jesus. We commit all this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.